Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. International News Review. It is time for Steve Oaken, the senior advisor at McClarty Associates, uh, and our International News Review. Good morning, Steve. Let's see your wallet. Uh, good morning, GVZ. Good morning, other guy. <laughs> No, I think this is starting to stray into disparaging territory now. Now I'm just the Dis- other guy. Disparaging territory. <laughs> nice. Very nice. How are you doing today, Steve? I've got, you know, my wallet, you know, I had enough points on, on SQ, so I just get whatever they give oh, out. there you go. Your gift yeah. is, is flying so, from flying so much. So, And, and that was, what, seven, 17 or 18 from. months ago at least, as we know, right? Yeah, I think about five years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not much newer than my wallet then. <laughs> there you go. All right, Steve, lots going on in the world today. Let's uh, let's start first. A, a U.S. journalist who was detained in Myanmar finally after, after 25 days in detention. Nobody had heard from him. He finally had a court appearance uh, this past week. He works for an organization called uh, Frontier Myanmar, and I, I've been a subscriber to their news service for for you know quite some time now, and it's it's a, it's extremely good news service. It's, it's extremely unbiased and opened. I mean, they were founded five years ago, so this did not wasn't something that came up just for the coup. Um, and, but this was was founded on the principle that high quality journalism is is what is important to have a functioning democracy. And so this was an American. He's he's worked with them for a few years. He's their managing editor. You know, the military junta passed a law right after the coup saying, basically, if we don't like what you write, we're going to arrest you. And we don't even have to tell you what it is. And that's what they did to him about three weeks ago. And he's been unseen for those 25 days, uh, uh, held in insane prison, had a quick hearing, and now he's, he's gone again. You mentioned there, Steve, American. That was the point that jumped out to me. He's an American journalist. It shows, at least to me, um, extraordinarily uh, boldness, shall we say, that they're now detaining openly U.S. journalists. What are the potential international repercussions of this? So he's, he's the second U.S. journalist they've, okay. they've detained. It shows that the, the, the military junta has, has no fear that the, there has been no effective pressure whatsoever from, from the international community, certainly not from ASEAN uh, at all. Uh, and you would hope this, this would be a wake-up call to say if they're going to just be arresting Americans, arresting journalists, not living up to their commitments under, no surprise, under, you know, under you know, typical conventions where the U.S. embassy and consular officials would get access to a prisoner. The junta's not doing that, that hopefully this will get some concerted action against the uh, against the military government, but I don't think anybody's holding their breath. Yeah. Uh, Steve, I believe that was on Thursday when Danny Fenster, the journalist, had his court appearance, just 37 years old. We're not sure when his next one is going to be. I think it, they, they said there was another one coming up. But just yesterday, the U.N. voted, the U.N. General Assembly called on you know, on on a halt to the flow of weapons into Myanmar. 119 countries approved it. China, Russia did not. 37 other members did not vote. Um, so at least there is some global recognition or international recognition beyond ASEAN, which we often talk about in relation to Myanmar, that uh, something needs to be done here in, uh, not here, in Myanmar. 
Yeah, but I mean, really, I mean, the, the 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 military has enough weapons to be used against civilians, and so yeah, I mean, sure, that's a, a nice step, and it, it should have been done, you know, weeks ago, and had been had been blocked at the UN. Um, but until really ASEAN, you know, starts to do what they said they were going to do, however many weeks it's been, well over a month and a half now, are we going to see any real change? So we've got to get more than that and the, and and as neil pointed out the the junta is brazen right not they're not afraid of anything right now well, on that point, Steve, just more broadly, you know, it's interesting to me that it's happened in the same week that, uh, you know, the pro-democracy newspaper Apple Daily in, in Hong Kong, of course, was raided and several prominent uh, editors in that department, in that office were arrested. There seems to be a slight trend here of late where more brazen governments are going after democratic or even you know, less than favourable supporting government news organisations. Are, are, are you seeing that? Do you, do you sense there's a trend here, this brazenness to go after any dissenting voices? Yeah, I mean, you, you see a real worrying split of the world into democracies versus, you know, author, authoritarian, you know, governments. And, and you see an open debate now. Can one country talk about the what's happening from the internal affairs of another country. China made very clear that that have always, has always made very clear they don't want to have any discussion whatsoever about what's yeah. happening, you know, in Tibet, in Xinjiang, uh, with Hong Kong, maybe potentially with Taiwan at some point. But you even heard that discussion here in Singapore. There was an extraordinarily interesting uh, celebration of the U.S.-Singapore 55th Mm. Uh, the 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 55th year of of relations between the two governments. You know, and Ambassador Chan, the former U.S. ambassador, uh, the former Singaporean ambassador to the U.S., said it should be a principle that there is non-interference uh, from one country to another country. So it, it is not. It, it is a getting to be a very broad discussion, and it's why we really need to beef up our multilateral institutions. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of China, there was an economic story that came out this week as well, which is our next uh, topic. And that is uh, President Xi Jinping has uh, established or announced a top deputy to push the domestic chip production in China to overcome U.S. sanctions that were put on by the Trump administration. And uh, we all know chips are, you know, the chip manufacturing segment is, is very important. And uh, how do, what do we make of this uh, new appointment? Well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's this whole debate. Are we going to have a decoupling between, you know, the U.S. and China? Are we going to have a decoupling between, you know, two different blocks? Um, and of course we are. We've we've been having this decoupling. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, China has been decoupling for quite some time. You look at why is it that I need to have you know WhatsApp and WeChat, right? <laughs> because China doesn't want WhatsApp, so I need to have WeChat if I want to communicate with my friends, right? In China, uh, I mean, so there has been a decoupling certainly on the social media side for years and years. We are now starting to see the the reality of a decoupling on the technology side, and China does not. China is behind when it comes to to semiconductors right now. So what the Chinese government is saying, when we want to get to the next generation of semiconductors, we cannot be reliant on, you could say, the West, but obviously it's Taiwan, Korea, and Singapore, the three biggest makers of of semiconductors right now. So I don't know if you'd say the West, but you could say one versus the other. China's saying, for the next generation of semiconductors, we have to be self-sufficient. And Xi Jinping says, I'm going to put my most trusted economic advisor, 
somebody who is a, a princeling like like Xi Jinping, who Xi Jinping trusted, you know, Liu He to do the negotiations with the Trump administration for economics. So it's a very important statement that China recognizes the decoupling is here, that they can't rely on the West or, again, you know, other countries for their technologies. It's too late for, for the current you know, generation of semiconductors. So they're going to be on their own when it comes to the newest generation and they want to be first. And what will economic rivals, as you mentioned, the US, Japan, South Korea, but I'm just thinking more about the US, US here. What will they think about this? Would they feel threatened by it? What will they be concerned? Well, I think, I mean, you would hope that this fits into what the, the US is doing under the Biden administration, which is, you know, kind of two tacks at the same time. One, we really need to compete with China. And it can't just be sanctions. We just can't put sanction after sanction after sanction on China and think we're going to win. We have to invest. And we need to do that through our infrastructure plans. We need to do that uh, through more investment in research. And so you see a bipartisan approach in the United States saying, we need to put a lot more money into R&D. We need to put a lot more money into technology because that's exactly what China's doing. So hopefully... The U.S. will will invest more in itself, but then hopefully it will also have multilateral organizations that can then compete with China because China is going to use the state to get ahead of where the United States and, and its allies and trading partners are. This is happening when we talk about technology. The other uh, element of that is the transference of technology and how uh, people around the world access that. Uh, interesting story that popped up this week about a Pacific undersea cable project uh, that has now not gone the way of a Chinese manufacturer, a Chinese company, Huawei, after the U.S. warned against Chinese participation. So this was going to go throughout uh, the Pacific, right, through um, uh, the Marshall Islands in that area, all the way up to Guam, correct? Yeah, so this was an, an undersea cable uh, that was going to be much better in terms of data and access, you know, to, to, to the Internet and, and the transfer of data. Because the satellites the they use cables. are slow, yeah, right now. Exactly. This is yeah. much, much faster and much better. Mm-hmm. But, right, this, this tied directly into a, a cable that went to Guam, which is an ex- extraordinarily important uh, U.S. territory, especially when it comes to the U.S. military in the Pacific. Huawei was one of the companies that bid for this cable. Shockingly, Huawei bid 20 percent less than, than than anybody else. Wonder why, you know, S- 72 million state. dollars less than the nearest it bid. Is. I mean, not not just a small number, right? 20 <laughs> percent. I mean, that's you get the state subsidies and mm-hmm. uh, and and the. The, the consortium that put together this uh, said all bids were non-compliant. We're going to take them all off the table. Obviously, there was U.S. The U.S. had made clear it did not want to see Huawei or one of Huawei's companies, which uh, gets access to to a, you know the U.S. cables, because the, the opinion is Huawei is part of, if not directly part of the U.S. of the Chinese government. The Chinese government can order Huawei to do whatever the Chinese government tells it to do, and if it says we want to get you know, access to, to all of this data, you're going to have to give it to us, Huawei. So it's not seen as a regular company. It's on the entities list from the U.S. Department of Transportation of someone U.S. companies aren't allowed to deal with. So this fits right into that broader thematic of the decoupling that is going to happen. And this sends a very strong signal to China. You can't rely on contracts from the West. You better be having your own systems in place. 
Bills. Yeah. And also, I mean, I was interested in the security aspects. You know, Washington detailed its concerns in a diplomatic note last year. They said that these firms posed a security threat. Are those concerns justified? Is there a security threat? Was there a potential security threat there? Well, I mean, that is the debate between the United States and China. And the United States, as Huawei came out of the, you know, the PLA, um, that, were, that, were its, that was its origins, that any Chinese company has got to accede to any demand or request by the, the Chinese government. Therefore, basically all Chinese companies are suspect. But this one is really suspect, and this sector is really, really suspect. And that's the U.S. position, and the Chinese say, well, look, this is just another company. It shouldn't be treated any differently, and that is not going to be solved anytime soon, this dispute between the U.S. and China, with other countries having to make the decision, are they going to be of the U.S. position that this is a security threat, or are they going to take the Chinese position that this is just a, a company unlike, uh, no different than any other? Fascinating, Glenn, isn't it? It does seem to be a regular theme in our discussions with uh, Steve every week. Leads into the next point you're going to bring up, this growing assertiveness of China in the region. Fascinating. It's it's very interesting. I mean, much has been said and done. And, you know, our our old friend, uh, of course, Kishore Mabubani has a very different view on this. He was just uh, talking at a, a conference in Hong Kong this past week about about the rise of Asian nations and uh, and and uh, it's it's fascinating. But having said that, I mean, it just tangentially, it is quite well known that many of these undersea cables have been tapped into over the decades. Whether it's going from Europe to America or from the U.S. Uh, the, the, through the Pacific, uh, so it's not an unheard of thing that. By many nations. That, we shouldn't just yeah, be lapping on China. That people know. access yeah. the information that is going through the fiber networks, right, Steve? Well, you get – yes, except – I mean, I think one of the questions would be, but if, if you can tap directly into it, if you own that cable, right, if that's part of your – if it's integrated into your national security system, that is a whole different level than, than coming in and, and eavesdropping, right, or, or using other forms Sure. Of, of, of listening. But certainly every every government is is engaged in, in some type, you, you, if you wanted to use word espionage, uh, to, to, to try and get an advantage. This is seen as a line that can't be crossed by, by the United States, though. Yeah. All right. Our final uh, discussion, as, as Neil presaged. How you like that word? I'm huh? always presaging me, Glenn. Always presaging. <laughs> sometimes you pay more for a presage. Sometimes it's sometimes less. Sometimes I pay less, depending uh, if I've got a wallet or not. Depending if you get your money with you. Okay. Uh, the Atlantic Council, which is a, th- a think tank in the U.S., just came out with this a new report, 15 takeaways measuring the U.S. and Chinese global influence. Uh, I'm going to put the link in the in the chat on Facebook Live because the, the, the graphics are beautifully done. But, Steve, give us kind of an overview of, of what this says about U.S. versus China and their influence. Well, so the Atlantic Council, which is a think tank in the United States, came up with this new – Index and they, they call it the Formal Bilateral Influence Capacity Index. I guess the FBIC. Uh, <laughs> it just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so the FBIC says we're going to look at all of these elements in which countries have influence over one another. So it ranges from trade and goods to foreign aid, arms trade, diplomatic exchanges, trade agreements. Are you in the shared 
intergovernmental organizations? Do you have military alliances? So you, you take these seven things, you, you, you mash them you know, all together. That's a technical uh, statistician term, right? So you mash these seven together. After you've measured them, you come up with this index. And over time, what we've seen using this index is that U.S. influence is, is generally on the uh, waning and, and Chinese influence is, is waxing. And it varies in different parts of the world. The U.S. is still much more influential in most of the world, much more influential in terms of countries than China is, except in Africa and Southeast Asia. And that is where China is more influential than the United States or gaining influence. And so what the authors of this report want to show to the United States is, one, we are no longer right, in, a, in a unipolar world. U.S., you are now competing with China for influence. Here's the things that can help you do that. And you need to focus really on Southeast Asia because this is where China is making the greatest gains and, and where the United States cannot afford uh, to continue to fall behind. And just one notable point I read, uh, China has built and maintains a strong and growing presence across all countries in the region, no surprises, with notable growth in Singapore. Singapore was highlighted specifically. What would be your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I mean, look, you, you look at all of the investment coming in to China. So the U.S. is still number one in terms of influence vis-a-vis China, but China is growing rapidly because you've always had a lot of U.S. You know, FDI here. You've had U.S businesses here. But now China's catching up on that part. But then you also see China engaging more with ASEAN. The Trump administration really didn't. The Biden administration hasn't yet done so, um, in part because of the Myanmar situation uh, that we talked about. You see China doing trade deals. There's a China-ASEAN trade deal. You see RCEP, of which China is a member of. What does the U.S. do? The U.S. pulls out of trade agreements. The U.S. pulled out of the uh, of the TPP, which had core ASEAN members, including Vietnam, uh, Malaysia, and Singapore as members. So this is not a surprise at all. I, I think for the, for anyone who's lived here for any length of any period of time, we see this. We didn't need this report to see U.S. influence maybe is holding steady in Singapore, but the Chinese influence is gaining. Hopefully this will wake up some people in Washington to what certainly Everybody who's listening on Facebook Live uh, and on the radio knows. All right. Our thanks to Steve Ogan uh, yet again, another uh, interesting international news review. Fantastic. Thanks, Steve, for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Okay. International News Review. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.